Welcome to episode five of Av Talk. I'm Ian Pechnik, and I'm here with Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, as always, and we're back for our latest installment in the beginning of May. And we've been doing a bit of traveling, and Jason's about to head off to Japan, and in in style, but a different style than relative you style. Originally thought relative style. So I booked a flight to. Japan, Tokyo Narita, via Taipei a couple months ago, and I was really excited to book my first revenue segment on an A350, and it was going to be in business class. So I was pretty excited about that because China Airlines has one of the nicest looking cabins in the sky. But a couple months down the road, they ended up swapping out the brand new A350 for one of the absolute oldest 747-400s currently flying in the sky right now. And I was a little bummed at that at first. I mean, I wanted to really, you know, get on an A350 and experience it firsthand for a real flight. But on that old 747, they have an old first class cabin, which they have discontinued. But since I was supposed to be in business class, they have bumped me up to old first class. So I'll be in 1K in the nose of a 747. So I'm not as mad anymore, but I'm really looking forward to it. So downside, it's no longer an A350. Upside, you've got the view out the front of the plane, basically. Right. It's going to be pretty great, I'm hoping. There aren't all that many 747-400s left out there in the world. It's kind of maybe a positive at this point that I should get what might very well be my last flight in a 747. I I don't know. That seems to be a running theme these days. As far as the podcast goes, is we, we keep every every episode we we mark another milestone of of seven four seven retirement. Yeah, it, it's sad but true. They're not going to be around forever, and certainly not the four hundreds. So you're headed off to Japan, and in episode six, we're actually going to talk with you and John Walton, who is an aviation writer, writes for Runway Girl Network about Japanese aviation and some of the things that. Japan does maybe better than anyone else. So we're looking forward to that conversation in episode six. Yeah, John's always got good things to say about Japanese aviation. From what I understand, it's pretty much the polar opposite of flying in the US. But he did just have a couple domestic flights, actually. So he should have some pretty good stories to tell. I'll be interested to to hear that when, when we talk about that. We've got your last, possibly last flight on the 747. But as far as first flights go, we've got the first passenger flight to the island of St. Helena that took place last week. Now, if you've never heard of St. Helena, we can definitely forgive you because it's about 1,200 miles west of the coast of Africa. So it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. No, it's not kind of in the middle. I mean, well, it's in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Pretty much. And up until they built this new airport, I guess it opened a couple months ago, the only way you could get to it was by very, very, very slow boat. Yeah. So the boat runs from Cape Town, South Africa, and it's a regularly scheduled boat. Boat? (laughs) (laughs) This is a podcast about planes, not boats. We're not supposed to know what we're talking about when it comes to boats. Maybe it's a code share uh, with an airplane. I don't know. It could be. Well, it turned out this week that's exactly what happened. The regular boat that takes people between St. Helena and Cape Town broke. For an extended period of time, for a couple of weeks, it was down. And so they ended up chartering an Airlink RJ85 to take people. It ended up taking, I think, 60 people from Cape Town up to Namibe in 
Angola and then flew across from Angola to St. Helena. And it was the first passenger flight. There have been proving trial flights, flights with yeah. trial flights with with just crew on board. But this was the first one that had people who had paid for their tickets to fly in into the airport and the first with, you know, families and, and, and things like that. So it was a, a pretty big milestone. There's a bit of a problem with this airport though. There's a reason why this has become the first flight with actual human passengers to this airport. And being in the middle of the ocean, you're susceptible more than usual, more than most airports to windy conditions. And when they built this airport, for whatever reason, they didn't take into account that it, there might be a bit of wind shear on approach to this airport. And it turns out they built it for, you know, your regular 737s or A320s. And those aircraft can't handle the wind shear on approach to this airport, which has kind of thrown a whole wrench in the situation. From my understanding is that they've they've figured out the southern approach as best they can. And, and that'll be, they're moving towards kind of opening the airport to regular commercial flights. But the northern approach is actually a little bit more tricky. But the northern approach is the one that they used this past week for the flight. So it works well enough for a particular type of aircraft. I guess it's just expanding that out to to 737. The first service would be from South Africa, would, would be the, Jason, help me out with the British Airways affiliate in- Comair. Comair. So that was the planned service with the 737. So we'll, we'll see how quickly that ends up being started. Yeah, an Avro RJ85 is not exactly a good substitute for the 737 you're supposed to be using. You're losing over, you know, over half of your your passenger capacity, and I guess it doesn't really make a whole lot of economic sense to be flying a, a such a small aircraft. But hey, you have forth. twice the engines for some reason. The designers were thinking ahead. Four engines for short haul. There you go. It's a new concept. New concept. Not new at all. Not but new at all. Speaking of things that are new, we have a pretty decent <laughs> uh, that's interview. That's a good that. transition. That is I think we do. I think we have a, a pretty decent pretty decent interview lined up with John Ostrauer, who is the CNN aviation editor. So we're gonna take a short musical interlude, and when we come back, John will join us to talk about the first flight and development of the Comac C nine one nine. So stick around for that. And we're back with John Ostrauer, the CNN aviation editor, to talk about the first flight and development of the Comac C919. John, welcome to AvTalk. Thank you for having me. Great to have you, John. So what we saw last week on Friday in Shanghai was the first flight of the C919. And so we wanted to have you on to, to kind of tell us about, we know it's China's first large passenger aircraft that they've developed domestically, but why was it? something that they've been working on, what's kind of the importance of this and, and versus some of the other new aircraft that are coming out, like the MRJ from Japan and the C-Series from Canada, and some of the things that, that are going on around the development and its importance in the Chinese aviation market. So that's what we wanted to, to bring you on and kind of discuss. And maybe if you could just kind of give us a little bit of background on, on the development of the, the C919 and what's going on there. Absolutely. The C919 is placed up against the backdrop of what is going to be the world's largest aviation market. It's going to be bigger than the US by about 2030 or so. And they need $1 trillion worth of airplanes, a trillion dollars worth of airplanes. It's the first trillion dollar market. And about 5,000 of those 
are going to be single aisle aircraft. And right now, China's airlines are feathering their nest, so to speak, with Boeing and Airbus single aisle aircraft. So 320s, 321s, 737-800s, so on and so forth. You know, we're going to see Maxes and Neos pouring into into China over the next the next several years. And the bottom line is, China wants to be a first class industrial stalwart along with the U.S. And part of the role of being the world's largest economy is also having your own jetliner industry. And so, over the last decade or so, they set about developing a single aisle aircraft that would might not necessarily compete today with Boeing and Airbus, but would be the same shape and size and, and rough performance of the A320 and the 737-800 to fly primarily domestic missions in China. It's, I think, about 4,000 kilometers, which should put you pretty much most points within China. So ultimately, this is their learning opportunity. It's their opportunity to develop an aircraft with Western suppliers who have the experience and who have the vested interest to make a Chinese airplane successful and reliable. Now, because guess what? In 25 years, when all of the 320s and the Maxes that are flying or going to be built today are going to be retired then, and they are not going to be replaced with Boeing and Airbus aircraft necessarily. They are going to be replaced with whatever the successor is to the C919. That's a great point. So approximately how many orders does the C-19 have today? Comet claims about 570, I believe. Certainly there's some squishiness in there in terms of commitments, options, firm orders. The bottom line is from, from a commercial perspective, whomever they want to buy the airplane will buy the airplane when it comes to China's state-owned airlines. They've got a stable of the big three and a bunch of others, big three being not Delta United and American in this case. This is you know Air China, China Eastern, China Southern, the other big three. And they're going to be flying at first. And actually, China Eastern, I think just today, announced that the first route is going to be Shanghai to Beijing, but there was no time attached to that. So, you know, obviously we're just the very beginning of flight tests and Chinese flight test programs take a very, very, very long time as we've seen. When do you expect to see it actually flying commercially? So uh, it depends who you ask. There's, you know, a lot of people assume that there are going to be a smattering of deliveries, maybe sometime around 19 or 20, and maybe it picks up pace after that. You know, this is going to be the one thing you to remember here is that they have the patience to do this. And getting it right, and not only getting it right from a safety perspective, but getting it right from a, a certification and reliability perspective is going to be the most valuable learning experience for them. And making sure that they can develop an airplane that is reliable, safe, producible, and reproducible ultimately is the, is the most invaluable, invaluable learning experience you can have in, in commercial aircraft. So correct me if I'm wrong, but the argument for the C919 is not really, this is a great airplane. This is, you know, the, the best airplane for flying, you know, between Beijing and Shanghai. It's, we're developing this airplane. We're going to make it safe, reliable. We're going to learn. And then the next airplane we build, that's going to be the one where we sell 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000. That's really the, I mean, if, if you're thinking about competitors, that's really the, the 737, A320 competition, but we're talking, you know, 20, 30 years down the road. Absolutely. And I think in the near term, probably shouldn't write off the 919 that much, honestly. I mean, not in terms of Western competition, in terms of, you know, head-to-head campaign against Boeing and Airbus necessarily, but 
remember the the engines flying under the wing of the 919 are exactly the same as the A320neo. So you're dealing with essentially a level playing field in terms of propulsion. Airframe efficiency is going to be something that they're going to learn over time. Systems reliability, systems architecture, you know, systems integration, that's the secret sauce ultimately. So again, you know, it's about it's about patience and in the long term, you know, the funny thing is what we've seen with commercial aircraft is that they go through different iterations. You know, this is not going to be the final iteration of the C919. They might re-engine it. You know, there might be a C919neo in, 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 you know, in not, not too long when the next class of, of engines is ready for whatever replaces the 737 and the A320. So, you know, my bet is that this is going to be a platform that is going to evolve over time because the bottom line is the market potential is absolutely enormous. So the C919 is definitely not the only twin-engine next-generation aircraft we have coming out right now. We have the Mitsubishi MRJ. We have the Sukhoi SSJ, the Superjet. We also have the MC21 coming out of Russia. So there's a lot of development happening in this space right now. What do you see ending up as the reigning champion of these new competitors? The one thing we should all kind of step back as lovers of this of this business to remember that in 2017 – there are an enormous number of new airplanes flying and entering service this year. It is extraordinary. I, th- I don't think there's ever been this many at one time. I mean, heck, we had the 787 and the 319neo flying on the same day. I mean, it feels like we're doing a first flight every two to three weeks. And we've still, as this year rolls on, we've got MC21, A350-1000 entry to service. We have A330neo first flight. So we still have a bunch of milestones to go. So it, it's in a really exciting time. As far as those competitors, the ones who are going to probably find the most success are the ones who are going to be able to tap into the established markets. And certainly, MRJ has that leg up because they already have, they have SkyWest and Transstates on their order books. Obviously, or I say not necessarily obviously, but in, crucially, that's probably going to require a change in scope clause so the regionals can legally fly it. You know, it's, it is too heavy right now. So that's going to be something we're going to have to watch. So, you know, again, there is a balance that's going to have to be struck here amongst all the players. Number one, around certification. Number two, ultimately around reliability. And that was one thing that the Superjet has suffered from. You know, Innerjet, for example, now there's a grounding because of horizontal stabilizers used. And Innerjet is, you know, has cooled significantly after being a real booster of the, of the Superjet. So, you know, what we're going to see going forward is really... Can you match the reliability levels of an A320 and a 737? And that's the standard by which you're measured. Right. And you, you kind of alluded to it earlier about how the engines on the C191 are the same, essentially, as you'll see on your Boeing or Airbus counterparts. What about the rest of the aircraft? Now, of course, it's a Chinese-made aircraft, but what are the guts of the aircraft really made of? Well, you've got a, a who's who of Western suppliers engaged in joint ventures inside of China. So you've got Rockwell Collins, you've got Honeywell, you've got, you've got, you know, the, the usual players you'd expect to see nose to tail in a Boeing or Airbus aircraft. You know, the, the funny thing is everyone shares the same supply base and, you know, the other folks were kind of, you know, lamenting the fact that, oh, it's just a, a Chinese knockoff. And it's, you, you can, you know, yes, there are visual similarities, but, you know, airports are shaped the way airports are shaped and that gates don't work with blended wing body aircraft yet. And, and certainly, you know, form follows function. 
And when you have the same suppliers, this is ultimately what you get. You get a very similar aircraft. So, you know, the irony is that that when you look at an international supply base like this, no one sort of calls the MRJ, you know, you know, Japanese regional jet takes flight with help of US, you know, that's like, (laughs) no one, no one points that out. So, you know, there is a bit of a a Western double standard that's taking place with the 919. And, you know, it should not go unrecognized how challenging it is to build a commercial aircraft. It is the hardest thing in the world you can do. And certainly they've based on the Chinese ecosystem, which is a, a largely planned economy, um, this is how they've gone about doing it. And each and every one of those companies, whether it's whether it's CFM, Rockwell, Honeywell, so on and so forth, Parker Eaton, you know, they want a slice of that of that future pie. And because, you know, it's it's the land where 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 hundred million people are getting on an airplane for the first time every year. And that's where the growth is gonna be. Right. So Chinese aviation is historically pretty closed off and private for the most part compared to to Western aviation. But I understand that Comac did something pretty damn cool for their first flight, where they actually streamed live video from the flight deck during the first flight. This happened in the middle of the night, 2, 3 a.m. Eastern, but I assume you were able to catch that live? I was able to catch that. And honestly, I I stayed up quite late and thankfully I had the benefit of a three-hour time change here in Seattle. So it wasn't too late, but it, it was late enough. But you know something, just to see over the shoulder of their chief test pilot on a first flight, just, I mean, if they didn't do it, no one would have been like, oh, why didn't you do that? You know, it's it was a wholly unnecessary act that just raised the bar for really their confidence in doing this and the transparency that's gone along with it. I mean, this is not a, Comac is not known for their transparency. Certainly not Western transparency. So to see that gave the entire world for the first time, not only a glimpse to the C919, but also how you fly an airplane for the first time. And it was fascinating, you know, to, to, to see how he had his displays arranged and the type of movements he was making. And, and you, you were able to gather a good amount of information about, about what was going on there. And it was, it was seemingly pretty relaxed and they had an air to ground channel to go along with it. I mean, it just speaks to the the level of confidence that they want everyone in the world to walk away with in terms of how they're feeling about their development. And if I, if I may, one kind of neat note, while it's sort of opaque to, you know, us in the West on Chinese social media, there is a ton of information and a ton of, you know, photos from inside the factory and, and status updates in Mandarin from Comac about what they're doing, which tells you everything you need to know about where they're pushing this and where they're selling it, which is right right at home. Now, Google Translate only goes so far, so am I going to have to learn Mandarin? <laughs> well, you know, you, you can come learn it with me. I'm, I'm, I'm starting classes soon, so count me. That'll in. be our spinoff podcast. <laughs> learn Mandarin with Ian and Jason. Yeah. <laughs> Struggle with Google Translate with John Ostrower. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the C919 is not Comac's first aircraft, right? It is not, though there's a bit of an asterisk there because the ARJ-21, which is the advanced regional jet for the 21st century, uh, otherwise known as the DC-9 re-engined, re-winged kind of with winglets and some new new flight deck systems and so on and so forth, was actually started as an AVIC project. AVIC was is an arm of the of the Chinese aerospace industry and was the forerunner to Comac. And then when Comac was established, they kind of brought it all under the same same umbrella. 
So I remember seeing the, the ARJ-21 at, at the Zhuhai Air Show in 2010, and it's very much a regional jet. And it took them a long time to, to get it get it done. And done is still obviously a relative term because I think there are less than a handful that are currently in service inside of inside of China flying fairly irregularly. Yeah, they're with Chengdu Airlines and they pop up in the OAG schedule every now and then, but it's very infrequent. Yeah, they're, they're sort of, I mean, I would love to go to China and fly on one. I would really, really love that because frankly, I don't think, number one, Western audiences do not understand China. And frankly, I'm trying to understand it also. And the one thing that that's actually not well known is that China is actually the safest place to fly in the entire world. The whole loss rate inside of North Asia since 2011 has been 0.00. Wow. And North America and Europe cannot claim that. And they've gone went for essentially the worst safety record to the best in the world. And I really want to see it up close. So, you know, stay tuned on that front. But I think it's 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 about time that someone from the West goes in there and learns rather than dictates how things are in the other part of the world. Yeah, that's a great point. I think we got to wrap it up in a minute or two. Ian, anything left to ask John while we have him? This is kind of a rare opportunity for us. Well, I was going to say, well, we'll definitely have to have him back if he does make it onto the ARJ-21, because I'm certainly very interested to, to see how that project ends up working out. And, and since there's only a few flying, it'll be a, a rather rare opportunity. I'm going to do a full like flyer talk like trip report. <laughs> it's only, <laughs> like it's only fitting, right? You know, it's, I'll, I'll photograph the tray tables and, you know. And all that. It's, Measure the seat it's, pitch for me. Seat fixtures, seat fixtures. Every, everything. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But yeah, I got to work on my Mandarin first. That's first and foremost. So I guess just to, I think we covered a lot of ground here. And my main takeaway is that the C919 is, is an aircraft by China for China. They could really care less. I mean, at least as, as I'm understanding it, they could really care less if if anyone outside of China ever buys the thing. And so it's really interesting to me to see how this develops. And as you said, it's there's a ton of information on Chinese social media because they're they're playing to a domestic market. And so I want to take a step back and, and I think you mentioned a hundred million new people are taking a flight each year. Yep. Hundred million. That's an insane statistic to me. That's a third of the United States getting on the plane for the first time every year. Exactly. Exactly. And their middle class is the size of the U.S. right now. Actually, I think that was about two years ago. So it's probably even larger. It's 1.4 billion people. And so the, this market's not small is what we're saying. <laughs> it's not small. And you want to know something? You know, it, it's like anywhere. Once you get a taste for for flying and travel and, and wanting to go and, and wanting to move freely, it's a pretty insatiable appetite, you know, and, and a desire to, to do that. And and the one, the one thing I would, one wild card I'll throw in here is... It is definitely an aircraft by China for China, but China has also spent a lot of money in places like Africa, cultivating new airports and paying for new airports in in various countries around around the continent. And I would not be surprised if over the next decade or so, you know, five, seven, ten years, we see the C nine one nine flying first in in African skies. You know, you've got airports cropping up in countries that either that don't today have a three twenty or 737 service, but their new airport paid for by China has gates that, that are for the size of, you know, large single aisle aircraft. So, you know, watch that space. It's, I think it's going to be something that that's going to likely bear fruit over the, over the next decade or so. 
That's a great point. We've been chatting with John Ostrar, the CNN aviation editor. John, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us and for being on the podcast. It was a, a real pleasure and we'll definitely be following the Comac C919 as it moves beyond first flight and, and kind of moves into the commercial space. Well, guys, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Look forward to doing it again soon. Thanks so much, John. Thanks, guys. That was fun. And I think that we learned a lot from John about where Comac's going with this and, and what they're going to do with it. So I'm I'm really interested to to maybe have him back, especially after he's gone off to China to fly on these. Yeah, hopefully that happens. I guess whenever it finally enters service, I expect John Ostrow to be on the very first commercial flight. But always a pleasure talking to John. I've been following him and talking with him for years now. And if you're not following him and reading his articles on CNN, you should probably go do that right now. Yeah, John's stuff is on, on CNN and it's great. And he's also on Twitter at John Ostrauer. We'll put a link in the show notes. If you're interested at all in in the business of aviation and the development of new aircraft, he's certainly one of the best to follow. He's your guy. Yeah, exactly. But talking about new aircraft and following new aircraft, we thought it would be good to, to kind of sit back and, and we're talking about all these developments and the new aircraft that are coming out from from Comac, from Mitsubishi, from Embraer, from Bombardier, and and how do you track all these new aircraft? We're not we're not saying necessarily you know each single aircraft, but how to track the the types and the test flights and things like that. So Comac doesn't make it easy because they don't yet have an ICAO type code, but at least it does have ADSB. It does have ADSB, which is more than we can say for for some of the new aircraft out there. So you can track the Comac C919 with, since there's only one, it's pretty easy. The registration is B-001A. And you could just plug that right into the search field and that should pop right and up without having to do right a filter. Up. For other aircraft, it gets a little more tricky. You actually have to apply a filter. And for some of them, you have to either do a call sign or you have to look for the actual specific registration. But if you want to find a Boeing test flight, whether it be a 73 Max or the 78710, you do call sign BOE, as in the first couple letters of Boeing. If you want Airbus, it's AIB, Alpha India Bravo. Bombardier is BBA, Bravo Bravo Alpha. Embraer's EMB. We don't have one for Comac yet, do we? No. Comac on their first flight, they didn't use a call sign. So we don't know what it'll be. And so that'll be interesting to, to find out when, when we actually get a call sign from, from Comac, what they'll be using. And the same goes for uh, Mitsubishi with the MRJ. Only one of the couple of test aircraft that they have now, I think uh, four of them actually has ADSB. The others are tracked with MLAT, which is a little less reliable. And to find those, you actually have to search for the registrations. And I'm going to rattle them off real quick. It's JA2122. 2324 and I think there are a couple others but I don't have the registration numbers offhand but those should be So it's JA21MJ. Ah, okay. And then 22MJ, JA22MJ, JA23MJ which is the one that has ADSB and then 24MJ. So there's four of them that are now based in in Washington out at Moses Lake and they they're performing test flights over Washington, Oregon, Montana, Idaho. And that general area, but only one of them has ADSB so far. From what I understand, all four will eventually be fitted with ADSB, so it'll be much easier to track all four of the 
the Mitsubishi regional jets while they're while they're doing their test flights. Right. And as far as the ARJ21 that we talked about with John, <laughs> good luck finding one of those on the app. They're tricky to find because they just simply don't fly all that often. Yeah, and they pop up very very irregularly. But it might be worth worth setting an alert for. Yeah. If you happen to come across one, send us a screenshot of it. I'd love to see yeah, it actually I would, I would love to see it. And there and are... Uh, you take it. I was just going to say, while we're talking about new airplanes, we've got... We would be remiss if we didn't talk about the the very large, very either ugly or beautiful, depending on your particular point of view. Fugly. The airplane carrying airplanes. So Boeing has their Dreamlifter, which is designed to carry 787 parts, and Airbus has their Beluga, which is designed to carry all sorts of parts for various the A320s and A330 aircraft. A330 family, well now just A330 aircraft. And Airbus is actually developing the current Beluga family is based on the A300 and they're developing a new Beluga, the Beluga, the Beluga XL. XL. Because when you think of whales, you think make them larger. They're developing one based on the A330 airframe. And so those will be coming online in the next few years. I think the is the first one already in assembly? I'm not sure if it's an assembly, but I think they're gathering all the bits and pieces to get it to that point. So we'll we'll see those flying in a few years' time. So that's those are always very interesting to to see because they just they look so weird. Yeah, the beluga is crazy. I was actually inside one in in Hamburg during the airport's annual or I guess semi annual aviation days, and we were actually inside one of the beluga aircraft that had just come over from a Fink inverter across the river. And there was actually a fuselage of an A320 inside this beluga as we're standing inside next to it. And there's room to spare. It's kind of absurd that these aircraft literally just swallow another airplane. Yeah, basically, yeah. They they swallow and then land and spit it back out so that they can put other airplanes together. That's a charming thought. We'll call it charming. Yeah. Speaking of charming. There's actually some new pretty charming airplanes to look at. Yeah. So not new airplanes, but new liveries. Oh, fine. Well, I don't <laughs> want to give people you know, more hope for new airplanes. One is a special livery and one is a new standard livery. So let's talk about the new standard livery first. They're both island-based airlines too. They are both island-based airlines. We should have had some sort of a quiz or something like that. So we've got Hawaiian's new livery. It'll be painted on all of the 717, A330, and what am I missing? A321s that are coming. A320, the A321s. Yeah, everything but the 767s, which are being retired fairly soon. Right. Those will be leaving, the 767s will be leaving the fleet, so it won't get won't get that. It's not a totally new livery. It's more of a refresh of the current one, but I think it looks quite good. And the first it, aircraft it looks they very painted good. was a a seven one seven, oddly enough, and it looks really good on that. Yeah, it the I'm trying to think how to, how to describe the difference other than they added a, a silver flower to the fuselage and revised the logo text. Yeah, I think it looks very smart. It takes away some of the the negative white space that they had before. So Hawaiian updated their livery, and then Iceland is celebrating eighty years of aviation. And so they decided to go out and paint. They're obviously known for their their Hecla Aurora special livery on a 757. 
so they decided why not go out and paint another beautiful airplane it just to me looks fantastic yeah it's pretty great unfortunately here in new york we rarely see these new specials i think we saw heckle aurora here at jfk once ever so i'm not holding my breath to see the new one unfortunately so how to track the new special liveries for hawaiian hawaiian is their first 717 with a new livery is november 488 hotel alpha and let's face it unless you're in hawaii you're not seeing that plane you're not no not in person at least and then the new iceland air special is tango foxtrot foxtrot india romeo and so that one I asked Iceland Air if you were going because you can request to fly on Heckle Aurora. Yes, you can write and I in did. And say, I, I requested and, it, and you failed in in your or, or both were unsuccessful my attempts. In your request. I, I came up unsuccessful in both my seven five flight last. So month. so sad. I asked Iceland Air, will we be able to do the same thing? Because I would be interested in in requesting that, or, or whether there's anything special about it. And they said, hold on. We'll have much more to tell you soon about that. So I'm hopeful that we'll at least be able to to make some sort of request as far as this special livery goes. Yeah, to. I might have to take a trip out to Newark because here at JFK, we only get in their summer, we only get their 767 and their one oddball 757-300. So not much of a hope for me here. And the 80 years celebration special also has the the scimitar winglets. So that's a pretty cool thing. Yeah, not many 7.5s out there with that. I think United is installing those, maybe? that I mean, they were the first to go with the, the split scimitars for the 737s, so yeah. that makes sense that they would do them for the 757s. So what else do we have to talk about? I think we have one more topic. I think we can talk about maybe Porsche and an A380. Yeah, not a combination you really would think of ever. It wasn't something that I was thinking, you know what my life is missing? My life is missing a Porsche pulling an A380. Well, obviously. I mean, who wouldn't want that? Yet here we are. So, so this, for, this is, go ahead. You you tee this one up. It's a bit of an odd promotion. The, the A380 is obviously the heaviest commercial aircraft out there flying people. It's huge. It's massive. And the tugs that usually pull these aircraft are equally massive. What do they call that German super tug again? The German word for it is Flugzeugeschlepper. Yes. It's also my favorite German fast. word. Yes. Uh, I mean, who wouldn't want to say that five times fast? But these tugs are, are super specialized vehicles, a lot of torque to be able to pull these aircraft. They don't go very fast, but obviously to pull a fully loaded aircraft with thousands of gallons of fuel and passengers and all that, it needs to be pretty powerful. But Porsche decided to hook, what was it, a Porsche Cayenne up to it? Yeah, they hooked up a, a diesel version and the the petrol version as well. And they set, well, actually, they shattered a world record for heaviest aircraft pulled by a regular Some, car. By something over 100,000 pounds or something yeah, like that they, they beat they the didn't, record by? didn't break the record. They absolutely destroyed the record. You're probably not going to see this in regular service, but... Delta has Porsches at some of their hubs, so maybe if a tug breaks down, they can give a partner airline a, a tow. Now, we know can't it can you get happen. A ride in a, if you're in first class in, in Frankfurt, can't you get a ride to the aircraft in a Porsche Cayenne? You can from the so first class terminal. You can get a ride from the first class terminal to the air, and then they just hook up the car and push you back. Yeah. Otter requests have probably been made, but this probably will not be fulfilled. No, but I mean, the whole thing was preposterous. 
I mean, well, a couple setting... years ago, remember when they brought the retired space shuttle to LA, one of their promotions there was, I think they had a Ford F-150 or maybe it was a Toyota. I don't keep track of these things, but they had a, a regular old pickup truck pull a space shuttle across an overpass. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, it, it's, you know, stranger things have happened, I guess. It'll make its way into a commercial soon enough and you'll see it over and over and over. I'm sure. If you're buying a new car, if you're in the market for a car, I'm not sure capable of towing an A380 is going to sway my decision in any way, but it can't possibly hurt. Towing an airplane is always the first thing I ask when I when I go to purchase a vehicle. Right. How many horsepower does it have? Is it automatic or manual? And can it pull an A380? And up until now, the answer has been no, and, and so I've been riding a bicycle. But now I uh, might actually purchase a car. Yeah, I don't think the podcast pays enough for us to buy a Porsche just yet. Or an A380. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll see. A couple of years. <laughs> so you're off to Japan in the next couple of days, and we're going to hear all about that trip in episode six. And we've got more aviation just coming out of our ears. And so hopefully we'll have plenty of things to talk about in the next episode. But until then, I'm Ian Pashnik. And I'm Jason Rabinowitz, and thanks for listening. And if you get a moment, please leave us some reviews on iTunes. We thrive off of those, and it will help other AvGeeks find AvTalk. Yeah, the more reviews that people leave, the more ratings we get, the more people are able to find the podcast, the more people that are able to find the podcast, the more AvGeeks we have. And who doesn't want more AvGeeks? That's right. It's good for the world. It is indeed. Jason, safe travels. Thank you. I will talk to you in a couple weeks, hopefully floated with good stories to tell. Excellent. Everyone, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>